Well, it's a, a real privilege for me to be sitting here with Roger Carswell. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. Roger, do you live in London? <laughs> no, I have for the last fortnight. I've been doing various evangelistic missions here. No, I'm a Yorkshireman through and through. I live in a town a little north, eight miles north of Leeds. And uh, it's been made famous of late because the Brownlee brothers, um, you know, the triathlon people who um. won the gold in the last two Olympics, they come from Horsforth. But also the first man to take the gospel to New Zealand, uh, Samuel Marsden, came from Horsforth as well. He, he'd gone as a, a chaplain to the New South Wales colony and he met with Maori, who said, come over to our, our islands and teach us this message as well. He arrived in the north of the North Island on December 25th, Christmas Day, 1814. And to a big crowd, he preached on, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Yeah. So he was the first one to take the, the gospel to New Zealand. That's but that's where I was born and still live. Oh, isn't that wonderful? A Yorkshireman, eh? Wow. Well, and of course, Hudson Taylor was a Yorkshireman from Barnsley. Mm -hmm. uh, John Wycliffe, the first man to translate the Bible into English. William Wilberforce. We have a good heritage. Yes. <laughs> yes. World changers. They were. Yeah. Mm. And as you look into each of those lives again and again, you find, you look at Wilberforce and you look at Wycliffe, it seems that their, their enjoyment, their delight in Christ was mm. a conspicuous element. I always love that quote which um, Wilberforce gave. It, uh, he was... He was frustrated with the churchmen of his time because he said, where is the joy hmm. that is so frequently enjoined in hmm. the scriptures? <laughs> it was this, uh... Absolutely. He was an amazing man, not only because of his political work. He founded 70 uh, individual charities, but he, he was zealous. He was sort of out of breath pursuing people uh, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. He, his great friend, Pitt the Younger, he hmm. prayed for him earnestly and longed to see him converted. He got him along to gospel services. Towards the end of his life, when Pitt the Younger was dying, a clergyman came and um, urged him to turn to Christ. And he said, may I pray with you? And Pitt said, I've neglected God too long for him to be interested in me now. Wow. Very sad words. Gracious mm. me, yes. Yeah, Wilberforce is um, it's interesting because people tend to think you know, we need another Wilberforce. Mm. People say, we need another Wilberforce. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that they don't seem to know that the, the first Wilberforce was, um, well, he was considered the greatest wit in London. And he, mm. was, a, he, was, uh, he was a great singer. And he could speak spontaneously for three hours. He was hours. a tremendous orator, wasn't he? Yeah, yes, yeah. he was. And that was, mm. it, was it, I think it was James Boswell said he saw a shrimp get up on the table. And at the end of his talk, he was, knew he was watching a whale. Mm. But he was also chaotic he was disorganized he was always late and he was totally <laughs> spontaneous and i love to tell people that because apart from anything else when you tell people wilberforce was disorganized late mm. and did great things i think well that might be me <laughs> and he suffered from ulcerative colitis which was a very painful debilitating illness mm. all his life he had this and yeah. yet still accomplished everything yeah, he did yeah yeah this is great encouragement and then mm. and then he himself says it was the prov it was providence it was mm. providence he attributed it to the lord mm. yeah so bless god for these great mm. these great forebears indeed excellent and uh, so uh, you've been in london for a couple of weeks doing the work of an evangelist i have um, so a few churches have got together and working very much in the city um, i've been preaching speaking in banks and businesses primarily i've been in a few churches as well but these are christian unions in some of the major banks of the city who've um, really invited their friends to come along. Sometimes I've interviewed somebody sharing their testimony 
and then spoken. Other times I've just spoken, but they've been really encouraging. Some of them have been quite small groups. There are one or two businesses that won't allow the Christians to advertise what they're doing. But then others are very open about um, uh, be, you know, giving the freedom to advertise through emails, through posters, etc. We've had big crowds there. Well, it's extraordinary. At Christmas time, you see the extraordinary potency, the potential of the uh, of the city church buildings, because yeah. you tend to find that I used to work at Schroders in the city, and Schroders and Deutsche Bank and all these great um, uh, uh, merchant banks. They want to have a carol service, mm. so they say, "Well, can we have it at, at your building?" Mm. And uh, the, the the believing churches often say, yes, of course you can. Now, I will be preaching from Mark chapter 10 <laughs> and you will be... <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. yes. Uh, um, yeah. Simon um, Dowdy, he's a, he's a brilliant example of that. And uh, we often see characters like Rico Tice and William Taylor mm. preaching the gospel. Mm. I heard Jay John say once uh, that he said, if only we could... Uh, we could have Christmas all year round. We'd evangelise the whole No, <laughs> indeed. But I have to say as well, um, um, I've gone out onto the streets every day with tracts and um, sought to distribute these and get into conversation with people. And I found a great openness it's, um, to, to talk here. I find it's easier to do tract work on the streets in London than certainly in Yorkshire. Oh, there are so many people. And OK, lots of people say no thanks. They're usually quite polite. Some just walk by. That doesn't matter. But I found that some will stay and talk. And I found, intriguingly, that some have taken the, the tract. I don't call it that. I call it a, a Christian leaflet or... Uh, an Easter leaflet, because that's the time of the year at the moment. Um, they've taken it and then come back, which wow. is quite interesting, wow. and said, can I talk with you about this? Wow. So it's, I, I found this a very encouraging work. I've done it in Leicester Square, London Bridge, Brick Lane. Um, I've really enjoyed doing it. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. You yeah. must have some stories of people who have... Uh, have come back. Do you know of uh, seeds that have been sown and fr fruition? Well, just two days come? ago, at, uh, this man not converted, but um, uh, on London Bridge, a man called Ahmed came back. And um, at first I thought he was just out for an argument, but there was an openness. He clearly didn't know that much about his own faith, and he knew very little about the Christian faith. And eventually I got the Bible out and I was showing him various things, etc. Now, I had a lovely time with him and I thought, well, this is quite interesting. I don't know that in the north there'd be quite that openness, How really. Mm. How interesting. You do tend to find there's something of the smelting pot element wherein people have come to this large city mm. and they, they, uh, what they knew of reality has been questioned mm. and they've noticed, that, how, do, how do I get on? And people are open to conceptual conversations, it seems to be. So. Well, interestingly, um, <laughs> I found this quite amusing. After Christmas last year, the BBC said the godliest place in the UK outside of Northern Ireland is London. And their, their grounds for saying that was apparently 14% of Londoners went to a carol service and elsewhere in the country it was 9%. <laughs> so they reckoned London was the godliest place well, in the nation. I don't think I'd quite come to the same conclusion, but nevertheless, there is obviously an openness mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, a willingness to go to church on mm -hmm. some occasions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had uh, my, my colleague Ilona, who runs our uh, international tours, she was standing outside of All Souls as the, mm -hmm. on the day of the carol service and literally saying to people, would you like to come into the mm. carol service and seeing people adjust their route and wander into the carol service? She said, she told me it was the most amazing day of mm. her life. It was a couple of years ago. And I'm sure, Ben, that we should be doing this. We need to reclaim the streets 
the Jehovah's Witnesses are there on every you know street corner in, in cities, aren't they? And mm. outside railway stations, etc. In London, you've got the Muslims out there. And it, I, I find it quite painful that the Christians are not out there as we mm. should be. Mm -hmm. But we have the freedom to give out literature on streets. Yes. The law of the land says we can do this. Yes. And we need to do it. Yeah, yeah. The door is wide open for yeah, us. Yeah, and who knows who we'll meet. We pray, Lord, just lead me to somebody with whom I can have a good conversation. And mm. there are people like that. Mm, mm, yes. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it, it, you have been an evangelist for how many years, Roger? <laughs> well, I was converted when I was 15. And within a year, the most evangelistic group I've ever come across found me and took me under their wing. It was called the National Young Life Campaign in those days, Young Life. And um, it was led by the professor of medicine at Leeds University, Werner Wright. And what a zealous man he was. So he was a professor of medicine, government advisor. He was an elder of a church. He was father of nine children and um, a founder of United Beach Missions. But do you know, he was indefatigable in his, in his zeal in seeking to win people for Christ. And this group took me under their wing and nurtured me. So from a very, very early stage in my Christian life, I was encouraged to be sharing my faith. Mm. I, I taught um, in secondary schools for 11 years and my heart really all that time was in evangelism. So increasingly more and more in the evenings and at weekends, I'd be going away and preaching somewhere, leading missions, etc. But full time now, been for just over 35 years I've been uh, a traveling I used to say itinerant evangelist but then somebody wrote to me and said dear illiterate evangelist so I dropped the word <laughs> itinerant I thought nobody knows what this means anymore but I've been a traveling evangelist now for 35 years and you were converted at 15 how did that I was. come to be well so I grew up in Horsworth and God-fearing Christian parents but we were going to a Methodist church which to be honest was very small and I never heard the gospel. If I did, I certainly didn't understand it. Um, as a family, we had daily prayers over breakfast and read the Bible. And so there was this lovely, godly atmosphere and wonderful parents, really. Um, but my mother, my father was a Yorkshireman. He's, he died some years ago now. Uh, but my mother was Armenian. And um, I don't know whether you're aware, but in 1915, there was a genocide against the Armenians. My grandfather was an evangelist um, in Turkey at the time, but had to flee as a refugee. So my mother was born in a refugee camp in Aleppo, which, of course, now is Syria. In those days, it was the Ottoman Empire. But um, and then eventually they moved south and settled in, in the Lebanon. And most she grew up there. Most of my relatives were in the Lebanon. So, of course, as a family, we've been there on holiday. But when I was 15, I went to the Lebanon to stay with my folks um, by myself. And I had a wonderful holiday. It was marvellous, you know, and endless games of cricket and tennis and baseball and uh, croquet. It, it was a great holiday with my cousins and uncles and aunts. But one day, my uncle, who, bless him, I don't think wanted to play tennis, but trying to get alongside me, he, he said, do you, want to play, do you want to play tennis? And we, we had a good game. I think I beat him, but he was a lot older than me. And uh, afterwards, walking back from the tennis court, he began to talk to me about the Lord. And I was very open to talk. And eventually we sat on a log in a clearing in the woods in the mountains of the Lebanon. And he showed me, from all from the book of Romans, various verses about God, the fact that I'd sinned against God, and then 
that Jesus had died for my sin, that my sin was laid on Christ. And I had never understood that before. I may never have heard it, I don't know, but I'd certainly never understood it. And my simple 15-year-old mind felt, oh, wow, if Jesus died for my sin, the least I can do is trust him and ask him to forgive me and become my Lord and Saviour. And I'm sure my uncle went on to explain other things. I certainly remember him saying, Roger, it can be tough to be a Christian, you're swimming against the tide, don't, don't take this lightly. But if he loved me enough to die for me, I should trust him. And that day, August 25th, 1965, I prayed with my uncle and I asked Jesus Christ to become my Lord and Saviour. Mm. And it was life transforming. I, I often say it was the hinge which changed the whole direction of my life. So I went back to England. He, he spent a few more days with me just explaining how to grow as a Christian, mm. read your Bible, pray. He said something which I've never known anybody else say. Um, he said, now, Roger, you need to get a time and a place where you're going to meet with God every day, uh, um, read the Bible and pray. But he said, get a particular place and a particular time. And then he said, and never keep God waiting, wow. <laughs> which was a lovely way of putting it. Now, I haven't kept to that. Mm. But that daily quiet time became very important to me. Mm, mm. And I, 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 I sort of struggled on. I went back to this little Methodist chapel, which wasn't great, really. And the minister wasn't encouraging towards me. But then this group, Young Life, providentially, it was a, it's a long story. It's a lovely story of how they found me and they really cared for me. Mm. And they had Bible studies and prayer meetings and open air meetings and fellowship meetings and I began to grow and blossom in my Christian life. And we didn't use the word mentoring in those days, but that particular man, the professor, um, he really mentored me. He, he cared for me and uh, nurtured me in the, yeah, in the Christian life. I had the tremendous privilege years later, 1999, of speaking at his funeral, which oh, was held in gracious. Leeds Town Hall, Gosh. which seats 1,630-odd people. It was standing room only. Oh, he was word. a well-respected man and... Mm. Um, had the privilege of speaking there, but but humanly, yes, my uncle led me to the Lord, but Werner Wright really nurtured me. Gosh, mm. what an extraordinary! One of the, I love the the themes there of two individuals who served mm, absolutely. by faith. Yeah, I think uh, again and again when I ask people their testimonies, you think mm. you, if you try and follow the methods, all kinds of strange roots r-o-u-t-e-s yes. <laughs> through which people come yes but there are various constants and always the gospel of course and the story of jesus but you often find it's individuals who often people would not have served no reason. absolutely though i have to say my parents may not have as it, as it were led me to christ in an evangelical way they did lay the foundations for me and um yeah Mm. It's interesting, eventually their church was demolished and they started coming along to the church I was going to, a Bible-believing church, and their faith then blossomed. Oh, and I God. just wish that they'd been in something like that a lot earlier. But there we mm. are, the Lord mm. knows. Yes, mm. a fascinating conversation with someone, uh, I think last year, uh, he had been converted through a Methodist church in right. South Africa. Right. And uh, what happened was, uh, as a Methodist believer, he found himself now reading the Bible hmm. and found himself going, hang on, it says this here and you're doing that. 
Yeah. And it was, he had been led to the Lord by these Methodists, but then because of the Bible that they had given him, he yes. had to leave their congregation, yeah. which I found, again, an extraordinary route. <laughs> it took me some years to unlearn some of the things I think I'd learned at the Methodist church. Mm, mm. The, the whole concept of righteousness, it, it was sort of instilled in me, I think, that this was earned. And eventually to understand that actually righteousness itself is a gift from God. Mm. That was a revelation to me. Amen. And it took me quite some years to get that. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. But do you not find, I find it fascinating that Paul himself, late in life, says this happened so that we would trust in God mm. and not in ourselves. Mm. And you think it wasn't as though Paul, one day he got it, but it mm. seems to be something which we're constantly yeah. getting. Amen. And I love that about, I think that's one of the wonderful elements of the gospel is that it doesn't seem only to have been something which has once happened and now you just have to live on gruel. But you know, you're constantly <laughs> being revived and you're constantly mm. being re-reminded. I think it was someone said that Spurgeon lived in revival for the rest of his mm. life. As though he's constantly being reminded of that awesome truth as it was mm. he was shown another facet of it. Mm. So, yeah, an interesting idea. Mm. Interesting idea. So <clears throat> so Roger, what's also striking is that here's a fellow who's a professor a professor mm. and is a senior academic and mm. is respected in his town who's devoting himself to serving young people. Can you tell us some more about this young life thing? Was it involved in one church in particular? Was it a, a network? No, Young Life was founded in 1911, the National Young Life campaign with two Anglican clergymen, the Wood brothers, Freddie Wood, I think was quite well known, and, and Arthur Wood. And it became, it was an interdenominational group that was very, very effective in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. And people like Alan Redpath, Sidlow Baxter, John Blanchard, David Shepard were all converted through Young Life. Quite interesting. So it was a very influential group. Now, when they found me in the 1966, it, it wasn't the huge group that it was in the earlier days. But there are still lots of Young Life groups going going around, they're all interdenominational and all very evangelistic. Mm. So there's this real passion. They, they, they see the young people that they're looking after as the mission force. And I think that's quite significant because most churches see their young people as the mission field. We're trying to hang on to them, yes. but they didn't. Like they that. saw these young people as witnesses who were going out. Mm. And mm. there we were, 16, 17, 18 year olds, going onto the streets of Leeds, preaching the gospel, mm. Mm. Um, running evangelistic events, putting on evangelistic missions. Mm. And we were just teenagers. Mm. But they really, they nurtured us. It was it was quite remarkable. Oh, that's extraordinary. Mm. Yes, that's it. That so, seems so much more healthy. I, I, interestingly, yes. I, I only mentioned uh, to someone the other day, I heard N.T. Wright say, or oh, read right. N.T. Wright say, um, that the, that the the river of God uh, does not flow to us; it flows through us. Mm. And you do tend to find that uh, mm. I fear a lot of a lot. There's a lot of an, a lot of oxbow lakes, stagnant pools, I know, there are. where people are not being encouraged to. How can you find someone to serve? Mm. How can you find someone to serve? Mm. I, I, it's not uh, the most. It's not the most uh, flattering comparison. But they say that um, after a nuclear strike. Uh, there's one thing which survives, and it's the cockroaches. You tend to find <laughs> in a nation where things are falling apart, you often find there's one group which is still fertile among the people serving, mm. and it's the church. Mm. The extraordinary stories which are coming out of 
the, the places which are being ripped apart by ISIS at the moment of incredible courage oh, among know. the believers. Syrian so Christians who are saying they don't want to leave because they're seeing such blessing that they've never seen before, I know. It is remarkable. Yeah, mm. yeah. And you find, as I think it comes back to the point you're making earlier about uh, opening the doors to people. Come in, come in. Mm. I mean, mm. my, my friend saying, why don't you come in? And people saying, yes. You think, huh? Is that easy? <laughs> you know? Well, well no. how about that? Isn't mm. there something in that? How about you invite someone in? Come on mm. in. Talking with Richard Bogonan recently, you know, mm, of, uh, know the word one-to-one. -one. Yeah. He yeah. says, the people who he's invited to do his word one-to-one -one course, the statistics are extraordinary. But they says, are. Most people think, you know, well, one day I suppose I will read the Bible. And he mm. says, you know what, why don't you do it with me then? And they, and they say yes. And you mm. think, who knew, you know? Mm, and, then, and that course makes it so easy to do that. Mm. Now, at Christian Heritage London, uh, we are, of course, extraordinarily blessed to be surrounded by an amazing uh, cloud of witnesses, people who have without doubt changed the world, mm. uh, acknowledged secularly and mm. in the church. Mm. You're someone whose roots, as in R-O-O-T-S, <laughs> go into that church history. I know you've written on the subject. And of course, you've considered people who have, uh, who have come from your own area, whom you, you've, from whom you've derived encouragement. Who are people who have been, uh, who've stood out to you and have encouraged you from church history? Or maybe you're just your own history. Let me just, can I just mention Yorkshire again? There is a book by Faith Cook I have it. Um, called Fine Gold from Yorkshire. And she looks at 31 famous Christians in history, all born and bred in Yorkshire. It's a great book. And um, uh, there's some wonderful stories in it, but it's an ideal book to give to non-Christian Yorkshire people. Because though it's not directly evangelistic, the gospel comes through very clearly through some interesting characters like um, Kit Calvert. He was 16 years of age, walking down Hawes, which is only a, it's a beautiful, but only a village in North Yorkshire. Um, and he saw on the floor a piece of paper, which he picked up. It was a discarded gospel tract. He read it and was converted. Now, he became famous because he founded the Hawes Creamery, hence... Uh, well, from there we got Wensleydale cheese. Uh -huh. Now, the reason he founded it, he became concerned as a Christian for the farmers in the area who didn't have enough outlet for the, the milk that their dairy, their, their, their cattle were, were producing. And so he thought, right, I'm going to start a creamery and use their milk, give them business, etc. But he was a very well-known Christian in the area. And um, so it's got 31 stories like this. It's just worth bearing in mind, fine gold from Yorkshire. But the... Outside of the Bible, the book which influenced me most was Moody, which was originally published as Moody Without Sankey. Now it's just Moody by John Pollock. I was 17 years of age and I read this biography. I love biographies particularly, but I read this biography. And here was Moody, this very big-hearted man, American, of course, but who did great work in the UK as well as the States. And... Um, he would be speaking to literally thousands, particularly men love to hear Moody. He'd speak to thousands, but I read, he never let a day go by without speaking to at least one person about Christ. Mm. Now I was 17, I read this. And the next day I'd gone into a cafe in Leeds and I, I know what I'd ordered, it was Welsh rarebit. But a man came and sat opposite me and he said, do you mind if I sit here because the cafe's full? And it turned out he was a very well-known and wealthy businessman in Leeds. I didn't know who he was, but he sat there. And little 17-year-old me began speaking to him about the Lord, you see. 
as it happens, he's a, he was a Jewish businessman, but he listened and we talked. And eventually I gave him a little gospel booklet. It wasn't the appropriate one for him, but it was all I had with me, which was, uh, anyway, I gave it to him. And then he said, I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, I'd like to pay for your meal. And I said, well, that's very kind of you, but it's all right. No, no, he said, I'd like to pay for it. And there was me thinking, yeah, I wish I'd had steak and chips, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, but I left that conversation thinking, well, this, that was quite amazing, really, because I'm very young. He was an older man. I didn't know quite how well-known he was in the business world of Leeds, but he was open. The next day, I was sitting on a park bench, and I got talking to a homeless guy, very sophisticated, educated accent, but totally unkept, smelling and all the rest. And he told me he was a London barrister and um, he'd got a bottle of vodka with him. He said, this ruined me. And he said, I lost my wife, my business, my home because of this pointing to the vodka. And I remember him saying to me, young man, never touch a drop of this. Well, I haven't, but that <laughs> wasn't because of him particularly. Wow. But I spoke to him about the Lord. And the next day, I don't remember who this was, but I spoke to somebody else. So three days running, I chatted to somebody, some non-Christian about Christ. And that Friday evening, I just thought, now, under God, I'd like to continue to do this for the rest of my life. And I just prayed, Lord, with your help, I'm never going to let a day go by without speaking to at least one non-Christian about Christ. Now, I don't see it as a sort of legalistic, I must, must, must follow this, but it's a principle of my life, really. And Ben, it has been such a blessing to me. I can't, I can't speak too highly of what it's done for me because it's encouraged me to walk more closely with the Lord. It's encouraged me every day to, to pray at the beginning, beginning of the day, Lord, I do want to chat with somebody. Help me to find somebody. And I go out into the day looking for conversations and I love them, whether mm. it's the mm. person behind the, the counter in the shop if there's not a queue or in the garage or on the bus or... Uh, well, in, on the tubes, you don't talk to each other down here. You're a miserable lot, mm -hmm. aren't you? But, it's a, but wherever it is. And I, basically, my, the principle is I just chat. Chat about anything. And then seek to move it on to uh -huh. Christian things. And uh -huh. I do use gospel tracts as well as a sort of key to either open or close the door of conversation. Mm -hmm. So I would say Moody, more than any other Christian in history, mm. has sort of influenced me. But I would also want to point out... I do love Hudson Taylor, obviously mm, a Yorkshireman, mm. but it was his passion for the lost, his concern mm. to see others converted. And um, I don't know, maybe we've glossed over some of his weaknesses and they're never really made much of. He, he was a human being, as we all are. We make our mistakes, but he, he, he loved the Lord. And because of his love for the Lord, he wanted everyone in China to hear, didn't he? Mm. And that, that's, I read five biographies of... Um, of Hudson Taylor. The best is Roger Steers, mm. I think, A Man in Christ. Right. It's a great, great book. Mm. But there are others. Billy Graham. My wife was converted through Billy Graham. Oh, and you have wow. to say about him. Um, interesting. I, I know it's not long since he died. But before that, I was finding university students didn't even know who he was. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot to learn from Billy Graham. He had certain things going for him that we don't have. But if you can get the, the biography of his by Walter Martin or Marshall, no, no, Walter Martin, called Prophet with Honour. It's H-O-N-O-R mm. is the spelling. 
Um, that is a great biography. Mm. It's far better than Just As I Am. Mm -hmm. And it tells you how he prepared, how he prayed, how he got ready for missions. Very helpful mm. book. Yes, he, yeah. said he was a man of prayer, wasn't he? He was. I mean, he, he was. He, he devoted himself. He said, if you have not got a devotional life, what do you think you're doing in ministry? He's extraordinarily provocative in that way. My, my <clears> feeling <throat> is... So I, I, I talk about my quiet time as the daily, dogged, delightful discipline uh, of, of meeting with God each morning. And I find if if I don't, Christian service is drudgery. Mm. But if I'm reading the word and praying and praising, I sing sometimes. I wouldn't like others to hear me singing, but yeah. I sing. But if, if I don't have that quiet time to go into the world without it, I don't know, it just is hard work mm. as a Christian. Yeah, yeah. We need to be walking with the Lord, don't mm. we? Mm. And if we've prayed in the morning, we can keep on speaking with the Lord during the day. If we haven't, I, again, I find that harder to do. Mm, it's, mm, mm. it's something so simple. It is. I heard Piper say, he said, um, he says, I have a PhD in theology, but in the morning I have to get myself happy with Jesus. Mm. That old George Muller mm. saying, I have to get myself happy with Jesus. And you think, these people have been used so powerfully. They, mm. they, it says George, George Muller said at the end of his life he'd had 25,000 specific answers to prayer, which says, first of all, he prayed. Yes. <laughs> Secondly, he prayed specifically. And thirdly, he looked for those prayers to be answered, which I don't think I do. Wow. I do seek to pray for specific things, but I think we easily find them answered and we move on as if nothing significant has happened. But actually, the Lord has answered prayer. If we're not praying, we've forgotten why we, be, we, why we became Christians. Mm. We became Christians to have a relationship Amen. with God, didn't yes, we? Yes, that's right. Yes, Jesus didn't mm. suffer on a cross so we could manage without him. He, he suffered so that we could come. Absolutely. We could jo join point. him with the, enjoying the Father and yes. the Father enjoying his Son. Yes. Yes, and that's that's open to us. It's that terrible illustration, which is, uh, you know, the story of the guy who was on a, a Cunard liner across the Atlantic, and he gets to the to New York City, and uh, and the captain says, um, um, "How did you enjoy the the trip?" And the fellow says, "Well, I I enjoyed the the trap, but I'm, I'm just so hungry because I, I of course uh, couldn't afford to to eat." And there, the captain mm. says, "But the meals were all." complimentary with your mm. ticket sir and you think this is we have been given this access this mm. access this access and how many of us actually mm. use that mm. freedom yeah which has been purchased and if we're not reading the bible seriously reading not just a, a verse or two but seriously reading the bible day by day I, I don't just mean picking out an odd verse but seriously reading i think we confine ourselves to spiritual immaturity and we want to be grown-up christians don't we we want to know mm. the word we want to understand why God is doing what he's doing. I think the book of Job, for example, is not primarily about suffering. It's about trying to understand the ways of God. And we need to understand as much as we can. There's always going to be, you know, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's always going to be things we don't grasp. But as much as we can, uh, we want to understand what God mm. is doing and why mm. he'd be doing this. You find, uh, reading uh, the text, you often find there's, there's, there's some... It's almost as though some gleanings have been left sometimes. They're just ready there for you to pick up. Absolutely. I was reading the other day, there's a little bit about Moses and Joshua and, and the name they gave to the jolly, uh, the, the, the place where he sat on the stone. It says, because here I touched the throne of God. And mm. you think, this is what we have been given, you know. It's been mm. set up for us. Mm. And uh, you think, 
you, you, almost your mind goes to it must be difficult, it must be complicated, and then you read it and it says, no, 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 here's a gift for you, my son, here's mm. a gift for you, and it's mm. just ready for you, it's a low hanging fruit, mm. and you mm. can't get it if you don't go out foraging. In I, know, sense. Yes. I know, <laughs> I know, and and but though the word of God, reading it day by day, is important. This sort of conversation where you've got spiritual people, one trusts about ourselves, but <laughs> spiritual people talking about the things of God, that for me has been incredibly helpful as mm, well. Mm, mm. Um, the church, Learning friends. the insights, yes, the insights. So it's not just inconsequential chatter, but mm. we're talking about the Lord and the mm. Word and mm. etc. important. Lloyd Jones mm. said that, he says that it's strange use of terms. He says, I would rather have half an hour with a saint and all these great riches. You think, you think what do you mean a saint, Lloyd-Jones? Yeah. But I think he, what he meant was yeah. someone who has got their R-O-O-T-S roots mm. into the Saviour, mm. and the fruit has come up. Mm. And you say, I'd rather be with someone who has got one foot in heaven. <laughs> absolutely, yes. absolutely. But that's mm. any, any, any believer, any believer has that. I, Keller was so helpful on that to me when he said, uh, he said it's, uh, there isn't one sort of person who accepts the gospel. You'll find, I was delighted to take a group on a walk through the uh, city of London the other day and, the, and through the British Museum. And among us, we had, I think, three or four grandmothers, three, three grandmothers. <laughs> One of them was a theologian, an American in Ukraine, writing a textbook on theology in Russian. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Two Irish and one Scottish girl. And as we're together, it was the same gospel, which Amen. ignited us all. At the end of Romans, where Paul is, he has that long list of names, doesn't he? Send greetings to so-and-so and so-and-so. And then he says, and these people send greetings to you. And there are two in complete contrast. I've forgotten. It's about verse 26, something like this in Romans 16. One is the city treasurer. And the other is a man called Quartus, which, of course, is number four. So almost certainly he was a slave. He didn't even have a name. Wow, He's just number four. But clearly man. he was with the Apostle Paul and the city treasurer, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and they were all together. And we send you greetings. That's the Christian community, isn't it? Oh, that's wonderful. It's lovely, yes. That's a beautiful thing. I like mm. it. I like that. So, Roger, um, to what are you up presently? What's new on your horizon? What's exciting you or what's, what's next? Um, my next main mission now is in Blackburn. A number of Anglican churches in Blackburn are getting together for an evangelistic mission. I've done two or three missions with them in the past. But in some ways, I think, trying to assess what I do, what I do, I think, the, well, let me just say what I do do. I, I obviously lead evangelistic missions and I go at the invitation of a church or a group of churches or um, university and lead an evangelistic mission for a week or two or whatever. And as well as that, I seek to every day talk to somebody about the Lord. I seek as well to write, and I'm going to come, up, come back to that in a moment. And I also, because I don't just want to be going at the invitation of others and speaking for them, I feel I should, as it were, organise certain evangelistic events as well. So I regularly think of things, either uh, a buffet supper or something like that in our home, or um, recently I hired a... Uh, there's a Puritan chapel near to where I live, which is just a monument now, but it's beautifully kept, uh, going back to, I think, 1646. And I hired this and visited the 1600 houses in the in the town where or big village where this chapel is and invited them to what I called was a unique service. And I had a man from uh, near Blackpool, David Earnshaw, to come and preach 
on the God of the Puritans. So I said there'll be a unique Puritan service and this speaker on the God of the Puritans and invited for it. We got 70 people there. Um, most of them were my friends, but 12 were from that village. So 12 isn't much, but 12 is better than zero, isn't it? Yes, yes. And 12 people came and they heard the gospel. So I like to sort of set up certain evangelistic events. But I think in many ways, the most useful thing that I do is actually writing gospel tracts. Mm. So I write them, 10 of those now publish them and they, they, um, they then get distributed. I use them obviously, but others. So the one I'm doing at the moment, um, I've just been told 25,000 of these went out, but it was very time sensitive. So this one will die now. It's, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it had its purpose. Um, I've not yet seen it, but it's just been published this week. Um, I've done it. It's the first of a series of tracks I'm doing of people converted from different religions. But they're all people who wrote their autobiography. And this man is a man called um, Isaac Levisham. And the, the testimony is a hundred and some years old, but he wrote his autobiography. I read it from the Evangelical Library, which, of course, is in oh, London. Well. And... Um, when he was 16, he lived in Moscow. He was Jewish. He said to his parents, what must I do to be saved? And they said, well, read the Torah and obey the commands. And he said, well, I'm doing that, but I'm not saved. So he went to his rabbi and said the same, and he got the same answer. He was very perturbed about this. At the age of 17, this is amazing, he left his home to walk to the UK. It took him two years. He was robbed. He was beaten up. He lived in graveyards sometimes. Other times people took him in and cared for him. Sometimes he worked to try and get enough money to keep going. Everywhere he went, all the way to the UK, he said to people, what must I do to be saved? And he got the same answer from the Jewish people he met. He came to Hull, first of all. He didn't get on very well. He got the boat from Hull to, to London. Walking in London, he saw a building and he thought, that's very plain inside. It must be a synagogue. He went in. It wasn't a synagogue. It was a strict Baptist chapel. And for the first time, he experienced a Christian service. He was very critical, cynical about Christian things. But a man came and talked to him and said, who are you? And he said, and how have you got here? And he said, I walked. And why have you come? I want to know what I must do to be saved. And the man he was speaking to was a Messianic Jew. Good gracious. Who introduced him to another, who cared for him. And it took two years before he was converted. His family cut him off, but eventually he had the joy of leading his mother, his sisters and his brother, but not his father, to the Lord. It's just an amazing story. And I'm doing a series of these now. I've just finished the one on a Roman Catholic monk from South America. And I just think it's an, a gentler way of reaching some of these communities mm. without, as it were, attacking them. And it's not somebody who's alive today who can be you know, undermine for whatever reason, somebody from mm. history, mm. and we'll see how it goes. So that's my latest um, tract. Um, and I love writing the tracts. I love researching them and writing them, and I love distributing them. Mm. And to be honest, Ben, they go out further than anything else I do in mm. that, you know, 25,000, 50,000, uh, 125,000 sometimes we get to. Well, that's, you know, I, it doesn't mean they're all read. Mm -hmm. But some of them will yes, be. Yes. And we get a steady trickle. Again, it's not revival, but we get a trickle of people writing back. And I offer a DVD about Jesus and a gospel or a booklet explaining how to become a Christian. People write back and say, could you send these? Which is very encouraging. Oh, that's extraordinary. Mm. And mm. <clears throat> again, 
Here's a guy, Eversham, yes. um, who many won't have heard of. No. But, but in, and that's what's attractive about it. I, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons I love to burst the, the bubble of the Wilberforce thing we were mentioning earlier is because, yes. because we think these heroes are of another breed. But, and as though they didn't have the troubles that I have. And my wife was only saying to me last night, this whole question of we are in this situation in which we are entirely at the choice and uh, sovereign decision of God mm. in each moment. Mm. And uh, of course, we hear that theoretically. But when you hear a story of someone who, a, an ordinary person, I think that's profoundly valuable yes. for people to hear that. And of course, you're not also a useful thing, similar to our little... Um, book we put out with Michael Reeves is it's short and people yes. might actually have a go at reading it I yes. gave I once I gave the yellow book uh, the freedom movement by Michael oh right yes I gave it to someone who said I have never read a book but he said I would read this you see because it's really? short and accessible really? yes so a, a short thing you, you're getting out of the the uh, the great leather bound world yes. well uh, as you know Ben my son um, heads up 10 of those and um, their book publications are all shortish books, mm. and they're deliberately doing that because they feel if, you know, 60, 90 pages, people are likely to start at the beginning and read all the way to the end. Whereas, you know, three, 400 pages, it yeah. needs a bit of wading through, doesn't That's it? That's right. That's right. Mm. <coughs> yeah. But on the tracks, um, I got um, a letter, it's a few years ago now, perhaps five or six years ago, from a man who was a, whatever, British Rail cleaner. And at midnight, he came across a discarded tract on a carriage. He sat down, he read it, he prayed the prayer at the end to trust the Lord. He got in touch with me oh, and we corresponded for a few years. It stopped abruptly and I suspect he died. I don't know. In my evangelistic missions, I, I have a, a way of doing my evangelistic missions, which certainly works for me. I interview somebody for maybe 35 minutes, 40 minutes, and then I preach the gospel. We call them real lives. Nowadays, they're using the title stories, but I always mm. call them real lives. And um, I normally like to know a little bit about the person. I don't, I don't have the questions all set out. I go with the flow. But I was doing a mission in Musselburgh at the Baptist Church there, and they said to me, we've got somebody we want you to interview tonight. He's advertised, but we don't want you to know his story. Just go wow. with the flow. So I said, all right. And he worked for the Royal Mail. He'd be in his 40s, and he had no Christian background at all and to be honest I was struggling to try and I, I want to get on to how you were converted and eventually I had to say well look how did you come across the Christian message and he said well I work for the philatic section of the Royal Mail and he said every six months we send out a national mailing and I thought oh I know that because I get that and he said and every six months because we include a prepaid envelope with our mailing I'd get an envelope back postmarked leads and I thought oh, I know what he's going to say because I always put tracts in free, free you know free prepaid envelopes and he said it had a gospel tract in it and he said I read six over a period of three years that was the only contact I had with the gospel and the sixth one he said I looked at it while I was working and eventually I went to the Louvre, which was the only place that was private in the Royal Mail and I prayed in you know in the, in the gents toilet to ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Saviour. He was converted through six tracks that had gone through the free prepaid envelopes. Oh, Isn't that amazing? Well, that really encouraged me oh. to put tracks in free prepaid <laughs> envelopes. 
Hey, there's an idea. Absolutely. Idea. Yeah. That's wonderful. Who knows where they'll end up? This is it. Excellent. We've somehow, we've got to get the word out there. Yes. yes. And we're not doing, even churches don't seem to have good posters these days. I mm. think, hey, you've got great sites. Why not have the word? Why yeah. not let's get it yeah. published abroad in well, every way it. we can? We, yeah. uh, we put, when we promoted our book, Freedom Movement, the Reeves Re yes, Reformation I know book, yes. We put out with a promotional video and I just went up to people in the middle of London and said, what do you understand by the word gospel? And I've, we filmed oh, it. Okay. And of course, they said all kinds of ridiculous stuff because it's not as though they've heard the gospel and are rejecting it. It's they don't know what the gospel is. Uh, I was just I didn't. There wasn't someone among the cohort that I spoke to who got it right. No really? one got it right. Their whole they said oh, gospel music. Yeah. I mean, people said uh, it's about enthusiasm. So I said, someone said the, the gospel truce. Uh, someone said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They did not know no, what the gospel. And so you you think that that's it's like in that we one wonders how much low hanging fruit we have around us. And I do feel part of it, to be honest, is I, the evangelical church seems to have become shy about preaching quote the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, in Luke twenty four, the Lord Jesus is giving the great commission to his disciples, but in Luke's gospel, it tells us what the things are that we're to tell to Jerusalem, our neighbours and the nations. And there are four things. He says, go and tell them about my suffering, the resurrection, repentance and forgiveness of sins. And I'm amazed how many times I've heard, quote unquote, the gospel preached, but the cross, resurrection, repentance are not there. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine went to hear a very well-known speaker at a university carol service. Um, and when he came back, I said, oh, what did you think of him? This, is, this was his reply. Great communicator. No gospel, but a great communicator. Wow. Well, that's devastating. Yes. And if we're not using the opportunities we've got, you know, it's, it's not surprising that people don't know what the gospel is, is it? Yes. Amen. Mm. Amen. Well, may, may people be encouraged mm. by these ordinary believers who quietly just told people. Mm. Maybe they... What's some advice for people in our time, believers who are going forward? The, the standards of Christian living haven't changed. The, the standards of the world around us have. And I think we have to guard ourselves from just slowly being influenced by the world's standards. So we begin to accept what they're accepting, whereas a few years ago we would have said, no, that's wrong. Mm to keep to the word. What does the scripture say? And let's be obedient. If I can give a biblical example of this. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 17, God gives instructions to kings. Mm -hmm. And he said, they mustn't get horses from Egypt. They mustn't multiply to themselves silver, silver and gold. And they mustn't multiply wives. That's, that's what he says. Now, you'd think every king reading the scriptures in those days would think, oh, this is just for me. And you'd think the wisest of all kings, especially, yeah. reading the scripture would think, oh, wow, this is just for me. But then you get to 1 Kings 10 and 11 and you read about Solomon. Mm. And what does he do? He, he gets horses. And where are they from? Egypt. Mm. He multiplies wives. He has a thousand of them, including his concubines. And he gets silver and gold so much so that it's not even accounted in those days. And I think, wow, if he could read the scriptures as the wisest of all men and somehow be oblivious to the fact that the scripture is exposing his sin, how easy that is for me to do. And oh. I, I would urge us to be, we don't want to be um, separatists in the sense that we are cutting ourselves off from the world. 
but their holiness, Christ-likeness, has to characterize our lives so that people see there's a difference. Yes. And we're not, we're not Old Testament prophets um, denouncing the sins of the nations. We are New Testament heralds pointing to people to Jesus. But let our lives show that, hey, there's somebody walking amongst you who is different. Oh, yeah. Amen. Uh, Amen. I, I think that would be my plea. Extraordinarily enough, um, when we start our British Museum tour, I start with that very observation because, quite frankly, you say, you look at the history of Israel, you look at the how good or how how faithful the kings of Israel and Judah were. On the Israel side, after Solomon, you've got one mm. who is any good. Jehu starts well, mm. does not end well. Mm. But then you say... During this time, you see, these are these are the kings of Israel. And you say, who is the, which is the famous, most famous king of Israel? Of course, David. Mm. Second most famous, Solomon. And mm. exactly, as you say, he's, uh, he's, they've been told not to accumulate the very things he accumulates. Mm. But if I then say to people at the British Museum, I say, if you go to every museum in the world and look for anything that belonged to Solomon, you cannot say one thing <laughs> survived which belonged to Solomon. It's all gone. But there's one thing that did survive, and it's a book, in which it says, above all things, guard your heart, hmm. for from it flow the springs of life, hmm. which is a proverb which Jesus hmm. quotes hmm. multiple times. And hmm. I never thought of that, but very helpful, yes. But it's exactly as you're hmm. saying, here's a man who had it on paper, Yes. but it's another thing. I know. Let's guard our I hearts. Know. Let's guard our hearts. And... and I think to keep an evangelistic view, you talked, you used the word gleaning earlier. I love that word because it comes in the book of Ruth, chapter yes. two, and it says that, that um, Ruth went out and gleaned. And I always think, I, I'm not a reaper in the way that Billy Graham is, you know, was, you know, he, he, he'd go preach and thousands would be converted. We praise the Lord for, for such, I, I've never seen that at all. But I want to be a gleaner. Now, a gleaner, you can't glean with your eyes shut. Yeah, you have to have your eyes open. So you go into each new day. Lord, would you lead me to people with whom I can chat today? And I do believe Jesus has died for all. I, 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 I'm very confident about going up to people and say, God loves you. Jesus died for you. And his desire is that you should be saved. A gleaner stoops for everything that she or he gets. You know, it's not easy work to glean. But each bit of gleaning helps to make a bundle. And the other interesting thing I always think about the gleaner is that they're as careful to retain as they are to obtain. When you're picking up one here, one there, one etc., everyone's important. Um, a reaper, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's unimportant, but they will lose some. It's just they're getting a vast harvest at once. But one here, one there, one etc., and, and it multiplies. Mm. And um, you live day by day. And life is very daily, isn't it? Mm. There's certain things I do every day. I, I, I read my scripture every day. I, I pray every day. And sometimes I have to make myself do it. But I love to do it when I do it. Mm. I, I want to speak to people every day about the Lord. I, you know, I work away from home a lot. I phone my wife every day. It's not that I feel, oh, I must phone my wife. I want to phone. You know, mm. I want to keep mm. in touch. And life is very daily. And I want to every day be able to live in such a way that at the end I can say, well, praise God, there may have been mistakes, I have been, but nevertheless, there's been that which counts for eternity. I, uh, that, that, that's how I want to live my life. And I think the advice to say, 
Let's redeem the time. The days are evil, but let every day count mm. for the glory of God. Mm. That's wonderful. I'd love to finish there, but I want to ask you another question. Mm. <laughs> and that's this. I once had the, I had always wanted to ask one of the uh, descendants of um, John Wenham what it oh, was right. that John Wenham did right. <laughs> because John Wenham, uh, of course, uh, has Gordon Wenham and David Wenham mm. as his sons. And these guys were not um, uh, just nominal believers. These were, again, mm. guys pushing back the, uh, the, the boundaries and serving the Lord uh, thoroughly. And they also brought forth believing sons who are also serving the Lord wisely and bravely. Um, and I had the great privilege of meeting Alan Wenham, one of the, the grandsons of John mm. Wenham. And I said, what did your grandfather do? He said, mm. as a father, I want to know, how do you get it right? Mm. And this is what he said. He said, um, he said my grandfather lived with us in his uh, last years. And he says, this is what it was like. At the dinner table, every conversation was of Christ. And this really, uh, I, I never forgot that. I thought that was an extraordinary yes, testimony. Yes, absolutely. But you yourself, you see, um, I know mm. you as the father of Jonathan Carswell, <laughs> because Jonathan, is, of course, is someone who is serving the Lord in this generation in a mm. special and unique way. Mm. And he's someone who, when we were trying to get our uh, yellow book, Freedom Movement, the wonderful evangelistic text that Michael Reeves had written so magnificently, Jonathan picked it up took it with both hands, got it out there, mm. and did incredible work with us. And we thought, ah, isn't that wonderful? It, it, we 60,000 copies, which, mm. was, which is a pretty... It was um, very good. <laughs> yes, we were very yeah. pleased for that. And it's being sold in a desiring God, a setting in America. And we were very pleased with that whole thing. Now, you have raised believing sons. And uh, I would be keen to hear just your thoughts and your, because <laughs> yeah, none of us thinks we've done well as a father. I don't tend to mm. congratulate myself in this sphere. But some things which you think, I know I did this and I'm not seeing people are, are doing that. Maybe maybe you'll have something which would be helpful and memorable to people. Um, well, I've got four children and praise the Lord, all of them belong to him. Um and we give all the glory to the Lord. You know, it's, it's his doing. He's been Amen. very, very gracious. Um, I've been away from home 30 weeks of every year for the last 35 years. So uh, really, humanly speaking, um, my wife has done a, a, a marvellous job. Um, so we've got two girls and two boys. He goes, girl, boy, girl, boy. And um, um, Emma, my eldest, is married to a journalist. Uh, ben, uh, number two, is working for... Um, TSCF, it's really IFES, but in New Zealand, so working amongst New um, university students in New Zealand, um, encouraging them to be evangelistic, that's his work. Um, and then Hannah is married to Andy, they set up and run Yorkshire camps, so it's right in the heart of the Yorkshire Dales, it's got a magnificent place where they run camps for children and teenagers all year round, but they're very gospel focused. So every day there are two main Bible talks and one small group devotions with whatever group comes. They come from schools, from churches, or they just gather together. It's, we've seen the most amazing answers to prayer with regard to that. And then, as you say, Jonathan, who always was an entrepreneur. I'll tell you quickly a story about him. He always wanted to be a farmer. And we used to say, Jonathan, we haven't got land and we haven't got the money to buy land. It's not going to work, I'm afraid. But every holiday, he used to go to some friends of ours who had a, a farm in the Yorkshire Dales and he would, quote unquote, help. And uh, age 10, one day he came home and just said, Dad, 
he said, um, I've, I've hired a field. <laughs> so I said, oh, all right, Jonathan, what, what does that mean? So he told me about the field and I knew it. And I said, what, you've, you've agreed to rent this field? He said, yes. So I said, how much for? And I said, and where are you going to get that money? <laughs> he said, well, I've decided I'm going to get some chickens and some goats and some sheep, but the chickens will produce eggs. I'll sell those and that will get the money to pay for the field. And he put up a sign outside <laughs> on the roadside of the field and he's, he called his company Cracking Eggs. Oh, my word. And uh, Cracking Eggs for sale. And, you know, he did that for six years till GCSEs killed it off, really. Every morning, every evening, he'd go and look after his sheep and his goats and his chickens and he made the money to do it. Go so crazy. we never realised that, you know, he was an entrepreneur right from the word go. But I love what he's doing with regard to books because they're selling not only books cheaply, as you know, and evangelistically, but every penny profit they give to mission, which Good is fantastic. Gracious. It's a wonderful setup. Mm. How's it happened? Well, the grace of God and a wonderful wife who really cared for them. She never criticized me for being away in front. Mm. Oh, she didn't criticize to me, but in front of them, she was always positive. Isn't it wonderful that dad can do this? Mm. Let's pray for dad, he's here. Mm. Um, I used to write home to the children every day and um, eventually when they started scattering, it meant that I was not just writing one postcard, but two and then three and then four postcards a day. And, um, and when I was home, I, I sought at least to give them 20 minutes undivided time. That sounds very little, but actually when you're, when you're under pressure to answer the phone, and da, 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 it, it's a lot. But 20 minutes undivided time, it might be playing uh, a game of cricket with them in the park or something, it might, whatever it was. Um, and to be honest, even the holidays, we didn't really have holidays. We went on missions. Uh, we went as a family. So they grew up knowing that the parents loved the Lord and wanted others to love the Lord. And we tried to encourage them that way. We've had our struggles with them and there have been some tough times with them. Um, but nevertheless, the Lord has been very, very gracious. I, I believe in discipline, but not rigidity. But if they did wrong, you know, they knew they would stand in front of me and they'd have eye contact and I'd say to them, now, what did you do? And they'd always answer as if I'd said, why? You know, he hit me first. I, I, I didn't say, why did you do it? What did you do? Because I was appealing to their conscience, not just their mind. And then I'd say, now, was that right or wrong? So we taught them right and wrong. And if, if it was seriously wrong, they'd, you know, there would be a punishment. Um, but they knew we loved them. And um, they meant the world to us, really. I, and I always feel that children are God's little spies. They find our weaknesses and they tell everybody about them, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> but they've been gems and they, yeah. Like mm. all families, we've had our tough times, but um, we feel mm. very grateful to God for what he's done. I don't mm. know what else to say, really. We prayed mm. for them every mm. day um, and just loved them. I still do. And now I've got 10 grandchildren so how many grandchildren have I got have I got 10 of those yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're scattered across the world but um, we're very grateful mm. to, to God for them Amen. and I earnestly pray every day the Lord knows I just long for all my grandchildren to grow to love and serve the Lord as well that's that's what you want so every time a new one's announced on the way I think oh another prayer burden <laughs> but uh, but uh, they're great they're wonderful uh. One of the things we look at in the British Museum is this uh, extraordinary piece of furniture from Ur, from 2500 mm. BC. Wow. 500 years perhaps before Abraham. And one of the, and the point we always make there is that uh, 
course, uh, this exquisite piece was from a very comfortable, sophisticated place. And Abraham left it and went to live in mm. tents in mm. the land of promise. You see, you think, mm. why would he do that? Mm. What good came from that? And what, the good that came from that was Jesus, of course, Amen. the seed of Abraham. And you think, why would you want your children to go that way? Mm. But you've seen, you've seen joy and you've seen jewels, you've seen fruit, you've seen life as you've gone in tents, as it mm. were. And that's beautiful. You're it saying, is. may my grandchildren know what it is to live in tents, mm. that they may know the God of Abraham. Everywhere Abraham went, he built an altar and a tent. When he moved on, of course, he took his tent with him, but the altar remained. And one of my prayers has been that wherever I go, there would, as it were, be an altar, metaphorically. Uh, it, it, something evident that a man worshipped God here. Mm. And when I move on, I want that to remain. A man of God worshipped him here. Anyway. Mm. Thank you so much, Roger. It's been wonderful to have this time oh, with you. Oh, it's lovely to chat. Yes, <laughs> good to chat. Thank you Bless very you. much. Thank you.